Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 21, Leviticus chapter 14. Chapter 13 of Leviticus was spent with Yehovah through Moshe, through Moses, teaching about how to identify Sarat in its many forms. Even Sarat on clothing and objects made from leather. And it was always the job of a priest to make that judgment. A common Israelite could only abide by the priest's decision. And let us remember that the priest was not a healer. He was not a doctor who made some kind of medical diagnosis. Because this was a spiritual diagnosis that was being called for. Sarat was not seen as a biological disease. It was a divine affliction resulting from some unacceptable, or at least unacceptable to Yehovah, spiritual condition. It was a punishment. So in essence, the priest was to use a tangible, visible means by which to determine a person's inward, invisible spiritual condition. And naturally, these visible scales and sores were carefully defined in the categories of clean and unclean according to God's standards. Not all skin diseases were Sarat. Just the ones that were called out in Leviticus 13, and it was only those particular skin diseases which were deemed to indicate that the Metzora, the one with the affliction, was ritually unclean in Hebrew Tameh. Now in chapter 14, the rites of purification from that uncleanness are introduced. As tedious as Leviticus 13 was with all of its micro details concerning Sarat, chapter 14 is utterly fascinating as Yehovah unveils the root and purpose for these ritual purification procedures. Chapter 14 lists the procedures by which a Metzorah becomes clean and after additional rituals, he or she becomes acceptable to the Lord once again. That is, the person is re-sanctified or re-holified, if you would. But chapter 14 also talks about another type of Sarat. Sarat on a house. So, for the sake of making our study a little more cohesive, we're going to divide Leviticus 14 into two sections, verses 1 through 32, which deals with the purification rituals of a metzora, all right, that is a person who's made unclean by contracting Sarat, and then verses 33 through 53, which introduces to the final type of Sarat discussed in Leviticus, that which could infect a house. Now, notice that when we get into this section, that the matter of Sarat on a house only takes effect after Israel enters the promised land of Canaan. And that is at least partially because the house in question must be of stone or, or mud brick. And this law had nothing to do, therefore, with the tents that these wandering Israelites were currently living in. Turn your Bibles to Leviticus 14 
If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 124. We're going to read the first 32 verses. Leviticus 14. Adonai said to Moshe, This is to be the law concerning the person afflicted with Sarad on the day of his purification. He's to be brought to the Kohen. And the priest is to go outside the camp and examine him there. If he sees that the Sarat sores have been healed in the afflicted person, then the Kohen will order that two living clean birds be taken for the one to be purified, along with cedarwood, scarlet yarn, and oregano leaves. The Kohen is to order one of the birds slaughtered in a clay pot over running water. As for the live bird, he's to take it with the cedarwood, scarlet yarn, and oregano and dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird slaughtered over the running water. And sprinkle the person to be purified from the Sarat seven times. Next, he is to set the live bird free in an open field. He who is to be purified must wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, bathe himself in water, then he'll be clean. And after that, he can enter the camp. But he must live outside of his tent for seven days. On the seventh day, he's to shave off all the hair off of his head even his beard and eyebrows. He must shave off all of his hair and he's to wash his clothes clothes, and bathe his body in water and then he'll be clean. On the eighth day, he is to take two male lambs without defect, one female lamb in his first year without defect and six and a half quarts of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with olive oil and two-thirds of a pint of olive oil. The Kohen purifying him is to place the person being purified with these items before Adonai at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering with the two-thirds pint of olive oil, then wave them as a wave offering before Adonai. He's to slaughter the male lamb at the place in the sanctuary for slaughtering sin offerings and burnt offerings because the guilt offering belongs to the priest, just like the sin offering. It is especially holy. The Kohen is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the tip of the right ear of the person being purified, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Next, the priest is to take some of the two-thirds pint of olive oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand, dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand, and sprinkle from the oil with his finger seven times before Adonai. Then the priest is to put some of the remaining oil in his hand on the tip of the right ear of the person being purified on the thumb of his right hand, on the big toe of his right foot, and on the blood of the guilt offering. Finally, the Kohen is to put the rest of the oil in his hand on the head of the person being purified. And the priest will make atonement for him before Adonai. The priest is to offer the sin offering and make atonement for the person being purified because of his uncleanness afterwards. He is to slaughter the burnt offering. The priest is to offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus, the priest will make atonement for him. And he will be clean. If he's poor, so that he can't afford to do otherwise, he is to take one male lamb as a guilt offering to be waived to make atonement for him. Two quarts of fine flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, two-thirds of a pint of olive oil, and two doves or young pigeons, such as he can afford, the one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. On the eighth day, he will bring them to the priest for his purification, to the entrance of the tent of meeting before Adonai. 
The priest is to take the lamb of the guilt offering and the two-thirds of a pint of olive oil and wave them as a wave offering before Adonai. He's to slaughter the lamb of the guilt offering and the priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the tip of the right ear of the person being purified on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. The priest is to take some of the olive oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand. Sprinkle it with his right hand some of the oil, sprinkle with his right hand some of the oil that is in his own left hand seven times before Adonai. The Kohen is to put some of the oil in his hand on the tip of the right ear of the person being purified on the thumb of his right hand on the big toe of his right foot in the same place as the blood of the guilt offering. Finally, the Kohen is to put the rest of the oil in his hand on the head of the person being purified to make atonement for him before Adonai. He's to offer one of the doves or young pigeons such as the person can afford, whatever his means suffice for. The one person offering the other is a burnt offering with the grain offering. Thus the priest will make atonement before Adonai for the person being purified. Such is the law for the person who has sarat sores if he cannot afford the usual elements used for his purification. Now the first thing to notice is rather obvious. The ritual procedures for cleansing a Metzora from his uncleanness are among the most demanding and complex rites in all of Leviticus. What might not be so obvious, though, is that they are quite similar to those rituals that we studied back in chapter 8, rituals that consecrated a priest into the priesthood. This is not a coincidence. Per- perhaps there is no more sober matter in these various prescribed Leviticus, Levitical rituals than for someone who is about to take his place among God's set-apart servants, a priest. But running a very close second to that was the super serious issue of someone becoming ritually unclean and then the high price that had to be paid for him to become clean again. Let's look closely at these rites because they're a shadow and a type. A precise pattern, actually, that Yeshua was going to bring to fulfillment 13 centuries later. Now, the stage is set for our study in the first three verses of this chapter 14. The Metzora, who is living outside the camp now, he's living away from his family, separated from his society and separated from God, believes he's now well, but he can't make that judgment for himself. A priest must be called to come and examine him or her, and this priest must venture outside the camp to look the victim over. And if the priest determines that the Sarat is gone, then the ritual procedures to make the Metzora clean begin. Okay. And a couple of comments here. First, be aware that the priest never attempted to cure this person. This there's nothing to indicate that the priest even prayed over the Metzora or anything of any sort of comfort whatsoever. Why? Because this was not a typical disease like a cold virus or the flu or the measles. Things which the Israelites commonly suffered just like we do. Like everybody does. This was a spiritual disease. There was no cure other than for Jehovah releasing that Metzora from his affliction. The priest 
was not asked to determine what offense that person had committed against God to contract Sirach. He was only asked to determine if the person indeed originally had Sirach and then at a later time if he no longer had it. So, after declaring the person unclean with Sirach, the only thing a priest could follow up with was to now declare that person clean if that happened to be the case. Second, notice that in addition to the inspection of the Metzra, the first of the purification rituals takes place outside the camp. What this tells us is that just because the person's skin condition clears up, he's not automatically deemed clean. He was simply eligible to be made clean. So the priest had to first go to the place where the Metzora was living. He had to venture, the priest had to venture into an unclean place in order to make his examination and then to conduct the first procedures aimed at making that unclean person clean again. This is not unlike the red heifer sacrifice that also took place outside the camp. Therefore, it was outside the camp that the red heifer ritual was performed by the high priest. It'll be that way sometime in the near future when they do it. And it's, I'll bet you anything is going to happen up on the Mount of Olives. Okay. A ritual which resulted, by the way, the red heifer ritual, in a mixture of ashes of the red heifer and then water which was used to sprinkle upon those who needed cleansing from having touched a dead body. In fact, there are even more similarities between the red heifer ritual and the ones described in verses 4 through 7 for purifying someone from Sarat. The ritual for cleansing now, the Matsura from Sarat, begins by having two birds brought to the priest. Two birds of a clean variety, of course. And along with the birds were cedar wood, scarlet from a worm. In other words, that color was derived from a worm. And a hyssop branch. Our Bibles, complete Jewish Bibles, call it call hyssop oregano. Okay. The scarlet from a worm is referring, of course, to the dye. A red dye that was produced in Bible times from the eggs of a certain type of a worm that lived in trees. And a hyssop branch was invariably used in all the types of um, Israelite purification ceremonies prescribed here in Leviticus and in other places in Scripture. And when we read in later studies about the red heifer sacrifice, you're going to see that these same exact items will be involved. Cedarwood, red dye, in hyssop. The procedure for purifying the Metzra is that one of the birds is to be killed and that bird's blood drained into a clay bowl. The bowl is to have water in it. Next, the remaining live bird, along with the cedarwood, the hyssop, and the red dye, is dipped into that mixture of blood and water in the bowl. Then the attending priest sprinkles the blood and water onto the Matsura seven times. And after that, the live bird is released to fly away. Let's examine a little bit about this ritual. 
First, the clean birds had to be of a type that were not for domestic use. And this was so when they were released, they wouldn't make a U-turn and come back. So they didn't use pigeons or doves of the kind that had a homing instinct. Usually the birds used for this procedure were sparrows. Second, an interesting term in the original Hebrew is used to describe the water that's going to be placed in that clay bowl into which the sparrow's blood is going to be drained. It's called Mayim Chaim. You might be a little surprised to hear what it means because you've heard it a thousand times before. It means living water. That's right, living water. Bet you thought that the living water reference to Jesus was a New Testament idea. In fact, living water, meaning water taken not from a well or from a pond, but it had to be from a running spring or a river that was flowing. Living water is a requirement for the water used in many of the Levitical sacrifices, particularly the ones that involved purification from uncleanness. So when Yeshua described himself as the source of living water, it was instantly understood by the Jews of his day what he meant. Rivers dried up, artesian springs might quit flowing from time to time. And when that happened, it was necessary to go find a new source for this living water that was needed for the purification rites. Jesus was saying that he was the real source of purification and it never dried up. The source was unlimited. So here we have yet another New Testament idea, supposedly, that actually begins in the Torah. Third, the scarlet or red dye that was dipped into the bowl was actually in the form of a strip of wool that had been dyed red. And finally, even though in this case it was a a bird um, used for this purification rite, it is technically not considered a sacrifice. That is, it doesn't fall within the category of one of the named sacrificial rituals we've studied. Rather, it is simply a matter that the bird is slain by cutting its neck because its blood is needed. That is not the required sacrifice. We find that this is not the required sacrificial procedure for sacrificing a bird. When a bird is used as a sacrifice, its neck is pinched in a precise way using a fingernail to sever its delicate spinal cord. Okay. Plus, all sacrificial rituals must take place at the tabernacle, at the temple. And the killing of this bird was done far away from those holy grounds. Now, before someone points out the red heifer sacrifice, a true sacrifice was done outside the camp. You see, it was connected to the tabernacle because the high priest who was slaughtering the red heifer worked in concert, worked simultaneously with the other priests who were at the temple. The priest who killed the bird worked alone. 
Now I point this out because in previous lessons I mentioned that there were required steps in the Torah to go from unclean to holy. First one had to go from unclean to clean and then one was eligible to go from clean to holy. Strictly speaking, no unclean person could ever could, 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 or rather could even participate in the only means that could make a person holy, which was a ritual sacrifice involving blood. Only clean people could offer a blood sacrifice. It was living water that was the primary medium required to make the unclean clean. On the other hand, it was blood that was required to make the clean holy. So a set of procedures that were not considered blood sacrifices first had to be performed to take the unclean person out of his defiled state back to kind of a neutral ground, so to speak. Okay, back to being clean. And that's what I mean, and that involved water. Now let me demonstrate to you another good example of how we should always be searching for patterns as to the answer to why certain things are as they are when studying the Bible. Since the Torah pattern is that water purification makes the unclean person clean and sacrificial blood makes the clean person holy and because Jesus Christ is said to be the one who fulfilled all the requirements of the sacrificial system can we actually make a solid connection between the two? That is, can we actually make a connection that's not built on allegory? A couple of weeks ago, I told you that just as in Old Testament times, unclean people today must first become clean before they can be made holy. That although that process is instantaneous and invisible so that we don't even realize what's happened, when we accept Yeshua as our Savior, we move from being unclean in God's sight to clean and then from clean to holy. So the spiritual principle we have learned in Leviticus still holds true even with the advent of Jesus Christ. Listen to a New Testament passage we're all familiar with. But I think it will mean something a little different to you now that we've been studying Torah and Leviticus. John 19.34 But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen it bore a born witness. And his witness is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may also believe. Blood and water poured out from him? Yes. And it was so startling that the chronicler of this event acknowledges that he was an eyewitness and what he's saying is true, even though it might not even really make any sense. What is the significance of the water that poured out of Jesus' body? You see, the water that poured out of Jesus from that spear wound surprised people. This wasn't something that they saw before. This was in no way a natural part of the crucifixion process, which is why the author went to great length to state that it actually happened. 
And he saw it. The water had great meaning because Jesus declared that he was the source of living water. The specific kind of water that Torah calls for in the purification from uncleanness rituals. This matter about Jesus and water and purification was prophesied. It was explained by Zechariah. Listen to this verse from one of the great biblical prophecies about the coming Messiah. Zechariah 13.1 In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. A few verses later it speaks of the Messiah being pierced. See, this passage is speaking of the coming of Yeshua. Now, a fountain, by definition, produces living water. Because a fountain is the source of moving water. As opposed to a well, for instance, it only holds water that doesn't move. comes from a pool. Water from a fountain used for uncleanness is simply referring to the standard purification procedures. Even more, where our Bibles say in that verse, for sin and for uncleanness, the original Hebrew says, for hata'at and for nidah. Now that you studied Leviticus, you know that hata'at doesn't mean sin, nor does it mean sin offering. Hata'at is the name of the purification offering. It says... For, in essence, for purification offering and for uncleanness. And Nadah is the Hebrew for the spiritual state of uncleanness, usually associated with a woman on her period or after childbirth, but it also can mean a general state of impurity. Okay? So what this passage is actually getting at is that Yeshua is the fountain of living water for the purification offering and for those who are in a state of uncleanness. That's what the original Hebrew actually said. Remember, uncleanness can be caused by sin or it can simply be a state declared by God where sin is not involved. A mother giving birth, for example. Now, if we would only bother to read Moses, as Jesus said we should, and take the Old Testament seriously, we would know that Jesus would have to provide both blood and water in order for mankind to be made holy. Water to make the unclean clean and the blood of the atoning sacrifice to make the now clean people holy. This was simply the playing out of the God-ordained Leviticus pattern and model and of course the prophecies concerning him in his ministry on earth. In verse 7 of Leviticus 14, the priest, upon sprinkling the Messorah seven times with the water and the bird blood mixture, declares the Messorah clean. Next, the second bird is released into the air to fly away. And although we've not yet studied the scapegoat ritual, this idea of taking a pair of animals and killing the one and releasing the other is the same for the scapegoat as it is, as it is for the purification procedure for the Metzorah. 
The concept is that the live animal, in this case a bird, bears that person's iniquity and it's sent far away from that person never to return. Or in the case of the scapegoat, the sins of the entire nation are put onto that goat and sent away never to return. Now I point this out because it is difficult to understate the tremendous importance placed on returning one who has Sarat to a state of cleanness. The ritual involves identical elements of two of the sacrifices over which only the high priest can preside. The red heifer and the scapegoat ritual. Plus, as I mentioned earlier, the ritual to cleanse of Matsorah is very similar to a priest being consecrated into the priesthood. Well, after the bird has been released, the Mitzra must now wash his garments and shave his head, and then he bathes himself. Once the Israelites were settled in Canaan, the place of ritual bathing became the mikvah, kind of a stone swimming pool. And as we've discussed, the concept of clean and unclean is very complex. And it is not a simple matter of a person being either fully clean or fully unclean. You'll notice that several times after a certain part of the ritual procedure we're studying, Scripture will say that the person is now pure. It says it after verse 7. Then after verse 8. It says it again after verse 9. And it's going to say it several more times during the process of cleansing in chapter 14. And, I mean, that's a little bit confusing. Here, as with the new mother, what we're actually seeing is the Metzora gaining greater and greater levels of purity. He's getting further and further away from his uncleanness. In verse 7, he reaches that first stage the stage of least purity, and then the live bird is released. After verse 8, after shaving and bathing, he moves up to the next stage of purity. In this second stage of purity, he's finally allowed back into the camp of Israel, but he can't enter his own home or his tent for another seven days. Then in verse 9, the third stage of purity is reached upon the person shaving off all of his hair led again, uh, yet again, including his beard and his eyebrows. I mean, what a strange looking person this must have been at that time. And then again, washing himself and his clothes in water. Finally, he's clean enough. He's reached a state of ritual purity sufficient enough to participate in sacrificial rituals meaning he can now approach the temple. What we see in a sense is a gradual re-socialization of that person. This is a step by step we have this person as being taken from being a social outcast back into being a member of Israelite society. And in the same way, step by step, this person is being brought from having been shunned by God 
back into his favor and then into his holy presence, the physical and the spiritual elements of restoration being linked in lockstep. On the eighth day after the first step towards becoming clean, then holy, the sacrificial procedures for the Mitzorah begin. Here we have another link that we shouldn't overlook. Male circumcision also takes place on the eighth day. See, in God's eyes and in Hebrew thinking, an unclean person is spiritually dead. The purification of a person from his uncleanness actually has many aspects of resurrection from the dead involved with it. We'll look at that at a later time. Quite literally, the purification process breathes new life into a spiritually dead person. So what has that to do with circumcision? The male child is not an official member of Israel until he's circumcised. For all practical purposes until circumcised, that male child is outside the camp of Israel. This is because the Abrahamic covenant from which came the Hebrew people and God's promise of making Hebrews a multitude and giving them a special land required as a sign of joining into that covenant male circumcision. This was reaffirmed with the Mosaic covenant and was non-negotiable. On the eighth day after life was given to that baby boy, he was accepted into the camp of Israel during a circumcision ceremony. On the eighth day after new life was given to the Metzorah, or better yet, life was returned to him, he was accepted back into the camp of Israel. Outside the camp is death, inside the camp is life. Outside a relationship with God is death, inside a relationship with God is life. Do you see this pattern, this connection that just keeps building? The evangelical concept of born again did not originate in the New Testament. Because the Metzorah was quite literally spoken of and considered to be born again when he was purified and reintroduced into Israelite society and his relationship with Jehovah was reestablished. So the New Testament born again concept is simply an Old Testament pattern brought forward and into greater meaning by Yeshua. In fact, not only did born again originate in the Old Testament, not the New, so did the idea of circumcision of the heart. And circumcision of the heart, a phrase Paul enjoyed, was first stated by Moses in Deuteronomy 10.16. And its purpose was to point out the exact same thing Paul was pointing out. That true circumcision, entry into the camp of Israel, and thereby into a relationship with the God of Israel, was a spiritual matter, far more than any kind of a physical matter. We're going to look more closely at that when we get to Deuteronomy. Well, verse 10 prescribes those two lambs plus a single year old lamb, some grain mixed with oil plus a flask with some additional olive oil in it 
And the Hebrew description of the oil says it's to be a log of oil. This isn't a reference to a type of a container. It's a measurement. A log of oil is about a pint. It means a pint of oil. And in the following verses, we see that the several types of sacrifices had to be performed for the Metzorah. The Ola, the Mincha, the Hatat, and the Asham. That is the burnt offering, the grain or the meal offering, the purification offering, and the reparation offering. The only typical sacrifice that is available to a non-priest to offer that is not prescribed for this Metzorah is the peace offering, the Seba. Again, this points out this enormously serious nature and price that had to be paid in order for a person who was unclean to return to cleanness. Now, the priest was to accompany that person being purified and reconsecrated to the entrance to the wilderness tabernacle, later on, of course, the temple. And he didn't go actually inside the courtyard, but to the main entry gate. The main entry gate into the courtyard. Now, it can get a little confusing as to exactly where things are to take place around the sanctuary because usually the entire tabernacle area, courtyard, sanctuary tent is simply referred to in the scriptures as the tent of meeting. So, in our current case, where most Bibles say the person was to stand at the entrance to the tent of meeting, it doesn't actually mean to stand at the door into the holy place. It doesn't mean to stand there literally in front of the tent, but rather at the entrance gate to the whole complex. Okay. Or in later times when a permanent structure was built called the temple, the Mitzvah was to take into the entrance at a place called the Azarah, which was located at the entrance to the temple proper. But anyway, the Mitzvah would face towards the sanctuary. And the priest would go forward with the Corbanos, that is, the, the, the various sacrificial offerings brought by the Mitzvah. Look at this picture. You see, he's got several things with him. Okay? And then the priest would go through all these rituals inside the temple grounds where the Mitzvah waited at the gate. First, the priest offered the Asham, or the reparation offering. And he used to do so by waving them in a manner that's called a wave offering. In Hebrew, this is called tenufa. Right? And the priest holds the lamb and the log of oil together, shoulder high, moves them side to side and up and down. Briefly, the idea of an asham offering for reparation is unusual for what amounts to a purification procedure because the asham is normally meant to atone for trespassing against holy property. Or it's used for making a false oath. or You've made a false oath, so it's atoning for it. Or you've caused an injury to a third party. Or as I pointed out on several occasions, as one of the offerings made for a suspected trespass against God, but you don't know what it is. That is, a person's feeling guilty, but they don't have a clue what they might have done. And depending on the situation, this person will offer an asham, sometimes a seva, but just in... They do it just in case, so as to avoid God's wrath. Now, since Sarat 
is considered a spiritual disease and therefore a punishment from Yehovah, we can rather easily see why a Mitzorah would offer an Asham sacrifice because he must have trespassed against God or he wouldn't have contracted Sarat in the first place. But just so we don't get the wrong idea, whereas an Asham and a Zeba could be voluntary sacrifices, the Asham here was required. So, Yehovah sees a need for it. Now, what exactly was the trespass that the Masora had committed that caused him to get Sarat? Well, most of the ancient Jewish sages agree that the most likely sin was that of Lashon Hara, slander, evil talk, what we might call character assassination. Okay, a very grievous sin that was equated to murder. Now, although it doesn't tell us so here in Leviticus, the Mishnah informs us that the procedure was that the Asham lamb was then brought back to the Metzorah and the Metzorah laid his hands on the head of the animal. Remember in Hebrew this procedure is called Semachah. Okay, recall that the laying on of hands onto the sacrificial animal signified two things. First, that the worshiper was identifying this particular animal as his offering. Right? And that he's now transferring the ownership of this animal to God. So that that moment, the animal becomes sacred property, holy property. And second, the guilt of the worshiper is transferred to the animal. Next, the lamb is taken back to the altar area, specifically on the north side of the altar. It's slaughtered there. Some of the blood is splashed on the uh, altar. Some of it's dabbed on the right earlobe, right thumb, right big toe of the mitzvah. Following that, some of the olive oil from the flask of the oil that was brought was sprinkled in the direction of the Holy of Holies. Then, from the oil that remained, the priest had to dab oil on the Metzor in exactly the same place as he just finished dabbing the blood. And it's important to notice that this is the same procedure we saw back in chapter 8 for consecrating a priest into the priesthood. The idea of dabbing blood and oil on ear, thumb, and toe was that the cleansing and the consecration was from head to toe. The whole person was made pure. The Metzora, still standing at the entrance to the courtyard, now has oil applied to the crown of his head. And it's believed that the purpose of the oil on the head, which is, by the way, being applied over the blood of the lamb that had been placed on the Metzora, is that the oil was meant to cover and protect the blood so it could do its atoning work. Now, following that, the female lamb for the Hatat offering and the male lamb for the Olah offering, the burnt offering, were slaughtered. And along with those, the Micha offering was given. And while the first offering was performed, the Asham, um, it was offered entirely by the priest because the Metzorah wasn't pure enough yet to participate in the sacrificial ritual. So the Metzorah was now allowed at this point beyond the gate to the courtyard, he could now take his rightful role in the hatat 
the Olah and the Minka sacrifices, a very significant step towards its return to holiness. Again, notice that there are these steps, these levels of purity that had to be attained, starting off unclean outside the camp. It took until the second level of purity before the Metzor could even come inside the camp. Then the third level before he was considered clean and eligible to even be present for temple sacrifices. And then yet another higher level before he could pass beyond the outer gate of the tabernacle or temple and actually participate as normal in sacrificial rituals. From verses 21 through 32, we see that birds could be substituted for some of the lambs if the Mitzorah was poor and couldn't afford the lambs. Likely this was the case more often than not due to the normally very lengthy time the afflicted person had been forced to live outside the camp, unable to work, unable to tend his flocks, unable to do his tradecraft. Yet he cannot under any circumstance escape the need for one lamb for the initial offering, the Asham, the reparation offering. We won't go over those verses because other than for the substitution of birds for lambs, the ritual is exactly the same. And after this, the person is no longer a Mitzorah. He or she is fully reintegrated into Israelite society. And most important, their relationship with God is now reestablished. He is at peace with God, holy once again. And can you imagine that person's relief? I mean, what an ordeal they had gone through. Probably over a period of years. Now, a quick comment and we'll move on. Religious Jews often refer to Christianity as a cheap religion. I won't delve very deeply into all the reasons. Some of them, frankly, are unfair and just false. But perhaps you're starting to see a certain element of it for yourselves. Jews scoff at the idea that we can pray a few words to receive Christ and in an instant we're purified and made clean brought inside the camp and joined to the covenants and have our sins atoned for. Bada bing, bada boom, from unclean to say. How can that be? The cost? Nothing. We don't give anything up. At least on the surface. But our sin and the destiny that it had for us. Look at what it tangibly cost a Hebrew to maintain his relationship with Yehovah year after year. Look at what it cost in time and money to be taken from unclean to clean to holy. All of these sacrifices we've studied are costly. Many had to be repeated on a regular basis. Indeed, it often cost a Hebrew almost everything he had to participate in some of these required sacrificial rituals. If he didn't, his relationship with God was either lost or at the least severely damaged. But in general, they did it because they saw peace with God as the number one priority of life. Without that peace with Jehovah, what hope was there for their life? 
So from a Jewish standpoint, it's not that hard to see why many of them see our Christian faith as cheap, meaning without cost. And as pertains to us, the receivers of what God did for us, they're right. Our cost is pretty much zero. But on the other hand, for God and His Son Jesus, they gave everything. Cost far beyond the richest, what the richest man on earth could ever pay. Sometimes Christians walk around rather proud of this, and we accuse Jews of trying to work their way to heaven. We shouldn't. Rather, we ought to walk around humbled beyond all imagination. We should be a little more understanding now of why a Jew would see Christianity as a cheap religion. And hopefully after studying Leviticus, perhaps we're now in a better place to converse with them about it. Okay? Since we can better see where they're coming from. Let's move forward now with the second half of Leviticus 14 contained in verses 33 through 53. And this is going to concern the matter of Sarat on houses. Now this section is interesting. If for no other reason it anticipates that future time when this mob of about three million Hebrews living in tents out in the desert wilderness is going to live in a designated land of their own in cities with permanent housing made of stone and plastered with mud. Now let's pause for a few minutes to end this lesson and regain some perspective before we get into this section of Leviticus. Remember that here in Leviticus, this point of Leviticus, we're at a time that's just a little more than a year after the Jews, or rather after the Hebrews' exodus from Egypt. With all the studying we've done to this point, it's easy to forget that barely a year had passed since that very first Passover, that terrible and dreadful night that God had brought with death upon the firstborn of Egypt in order that his people, the descendants of Jacob, could be set free. That would have been pretty fresh in the minds of the people. Now, I wonder how real the possibility of that future that God had promised to them was at that moment. In the midst of living in such difficult conditions, a time which would soon be, in, be extended far beyond what they thought they were going to spend out there in the wilderness, could they have faith that they were actually going to receive a land of their own? That they actually would eventually live in a place flowing with milk and honey. That they would actually shed their temporary tents and once again live comfortably in cities with roads and water wells and cultivated fields and houses. In fact, everything in Leviticus, as with all the Torah, is a preparation for a future time even though it was also for the present. It's still so with us today. Even though Yeshua HaMashiach has brought much of the Torah into fruition, you know, much still remains to be taken to yet a higher level of meaning and reality. The prophets, including Jesus, tell us about a future, a time still future to us today, 
in which many things are yet to happen. Okay, some of them wonderful and some well, belong, well beyond calamitous proportions. Do we have the faith today, sitting here, to believe that these things are actually going to happen? Will we be faithful in the midst of all those things and recognize them for what they are, God's judgments? You know, it's so easy for us to look back in hindsight at that rebellious and stiff-necked nation of Israel and find fault with their constant grumbling and stumbling and dissatisfaction, thinking, my goodness, what more does God have to do to prove his power and love and trustworthiness to them? I mean, he practically destroyed Egypt to set them free. He killed hundreds of thousands of Egyptians, but he spared Israel. He gave Israel his divine Torah, set them apart as his own people. He rained food from the sky to satisfy their hunger. He sprang water from rocks to quell their thirst. He traveled with them in a completely visible way, in a pillar of fire and cloud. Are we really that different? Is the people of God who now actually have God dwelling in us, if we actually believed and trusted that we are guaranteed an eternal future with God Almighty, and if we actually believed and trusted that our sufferings here on earth served a, a greater purpose for the kingdom of God, if we actually believed and trusted that that day is just around the corner, that our Messiah Jesus is going to return, I wonder if we'd still live our lives the way we typically do. I only say these things to put into perspective that these Israelites we continue to read of were no different than we are. They're just people, set-apart people, elected to serve God. But just like us, they struggled to put those promises of God and his laws and his commands and his principles into practice in their everyday lives. And when they were told of a glorious future, it brought hope sometimes, but you know, it was all so hazy. It was all so far away, so difficult to grasp and to lay hold of. They lived in the now, not the future, just as we do. And sometimes just getting through today is more than enough to deal with. You know, further they were faced with constant reapplication of God's spiritual principles, just as we are. Sometimes we think that the only major transition for Israel as it concerns having to reapply God's principles was from the Old Testament to the New. From the time before Christ to the time after his coming. But that's not so. We see them here in Leviticus being transitioned from a time in Egypt to a time of wandering. From a time of slavery to a time of freedom. From a time of servitude to Pharaoh to a time of service to Jehovah. And then a little time, a little later on, from a time of wandering to a time of possessing a land. Eventually they would transition from a tabernacle, a fabulous tent, 
to a temple, a fabulous wooden stone building. They would struggle with taking God's laws and commands from the situation and time that it was all originally presented to them at Mount Sinai, a year after leaving Egypt, and then reapplying those laws and commands to their new circumstances that weren't precisely addressed and the rather limited instructions given to them through Moses. Yet they were fully expected by Jehovah to do exactly that. They were fully expected to maintain the purpose of every spiritual principle God gave to them, no matter how difficult was their struggle. We're going to find over and over again in the Old Testament, the Tanakh, that the leaders of Israel tried to abrogate, change, dismiss, rebel against God's spiritual principles. Saying that those principles were from a long time ago. They didn't apply to them anymore in their new circumstances. And the consequences for those leaders and for their people and for the nation of Israel as a whole were terrible. You know, we're faced with the same responsibility that they had as God's people. We're not to reinterpret God's word for our time. We're to reapply it to our current situation. Our immediate circumstances are in constant flux. But Jehovah's principles are perfectly stable. It was true for Israel, it's true for us, and it's going to be true for all the generations, whether it be one or a hundred, that come after us. Next week, we'll look at the remainder of Leviticus chapter 14.